Welcome to Antibodies. This is our 36th Bodysode, a segment where we discuss research papers with the first or last authors of the article. Joining me today is Eugenio from Autonomous University of Mexico. Hello, Jaden. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm very, uh, very good and happy to discuss today's paper with that great author today. <laughs> Yeah, I'm very excited for today's paper as well. The article we are discussing today is titled Inhibition of IL-17A Protects Against Thyroid Immune-Related Adverse Events While Preserving Checkpoint Inhibitor Anti-Tumor Efficacy. The paper is coming from the group of Dr. Maureen A. Su at the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine. The first author in this paper is Dr. Melissa Lechner, and she's joining us today to discuss the article. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you guys. Eugenio, can you tell our audience a little bit about our guest today? Sure. Uh, well, Melissa Legner is an assistant professor of medicine at the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine. Her clinical and research interests are related to endocrine disease resulting from cancer immunotherapy, oncoendocrinology, and advanced thyroid cancer. She established the Oncoendocrinology Clinic at UCLA to care for patients with endocrine side effects from cancer immunotherapy and target therapies. She's also an expert on thyroid nodules, including biopsies. Before we start today's discussions, I wanted to ask, how has basic research changed your perspective and approach to treating patients? I think as a physician scientist, I always am approaching patients in the clinic to help identify what are the clinical challenges and how might we use basic and translational science to address them? And that's a little bit the unique role of the physician scientist. And then when we're in the lab, we're always trying to keep our models very translational and patient relevant. And that was really important for this project in particular, where we wanted to make sure that we had a model that recapitulated the clinical scenarios. And then I think lastly, as we're seeing patients in clinic, and many of my lab members will often accompany me to the clinic just to help keep us all grounded in what we're really there for, it's really nice to give our patients hope that when they say, why did this happen? Or what caused this? Or can you treat it? We really can say, even if we don't know in this moment, we're working on it. And so I think it's been a good bench to bedside translation to keep us motivated and then also really figuring out what the important questions are to bring back to the lab. Well, I think that's a great um, opportunity uh, and, you know, combining this uh, basic and clinical research for improving um, uh, patients' health as well. So uh, thanks, uh, uh, Jessica. Jatin, I think we could start with the terminology for the audience could understand a little bit more of the paper that we're going to discuss today. Yes, uh, thanks, Eugenio. Uh, Melissa, before we get into the paper, we usually have a section of terminology just to get some of these basic terms out before we encounter them in the paper. And I would need your help for helping me define these terms. First of all, just a very basic uh, overview of what are immune checkpoint inhibitors and such as anti-PD-1 and anti-CDLA-4. So immune checkpoint inhibitors are a new kind of 
immune therapy. And immune therapy for cancer means that we're using the body's own immune system to attack and kill cancer cells. And immune checkpoint inhibitors are one type of this class of medicine. And they work by activating immune cells, often T cells in the body, by blocking natural regulatory proteins. And the hope is that by blocking, for example, anti-programmed death protein or PD-1, or anti-cytotoxic T lymphocyte antigen, which we abbreviate CTLA-4, that we can increase or rejuvenate T cells to go after targets like a tumor cell. Okay, thanks a lot for that. And then we have this term, immune-related adverse events, also happens to be in the title, and abbreviated as IRAE or I-R-A-E. What is this term about? So immune-related adverse events can sort of be thought of as the side effect of immunotherapy. So when we think about nausea or hair loss, for example, with traditional chemotherapy, we now know that there's a different kind of side effect that we see with immune therapies for cancer. And these resemble autoimmune diseases that we might see from other causes. And they occur in up to 60% of patients who get combination immunotherapies. So they're relatively common and they can affect almost any tissue. We don't know exactly what causes them, hence the research like ours that many are, are doing, but they resemble autoimmunity. Okay. I'll be very honest, not being in the immuno-oncology space, I did not know that about 60% patients get autoimmune side effects after ICI. So that's news to me. And I'm glad I found out before <laughs> then later. <laughs> All right. So next term is thyroiditis. So one of the most commonly affected tissues with immune-related adverse events or IRAs is the thyroid. And thyroiditis just refers to inflammation of the thyroid. It's the typical picture we see of thyroid immune-related adverse events. In okay. these patients, it tends to just be an abrupt inflammation. All right. And the last term we have is type 3 immune cells. We continue to learn more about immunology. And so we've started to talk about types of immune responses. Type 1 immunity, for example, we might think about as cell-mediated and driven mm -hmm. by interfering gamma. Type 3 immunity refers to interleukin-17, which is a pro-inflammatory cytokine, and the cells that might make it, which can include T-cells, ILC, or innate lymphoid cells, and macrophages, for example, and is often associated with autoimmunity. Okay, that's a perfect start for our terminology. And I think we are set with these basic terms. So let's look into the premise of this paper. As Melissa mentioned before, immune checkpoint inhibitors or ICI, such as anti-PD-1 and anti-CDLA-4 have revolutionized cancer therapy. About 50% of patients in the US are currently eligible for ICI. Moreover, ICI is also used as a first-line therapy for several types of cancers which is a big deal because usually you have chemo or radio maybe as a first line of uh, first line of defense <laughs> uh, therapy. Now, the problem with ICI is like, as again, Melissa mentioned, up to 60% of the patients suffer from unwanted autoimmune side effects after ICI treatment. There are adverse effects that can cause permanent organ dysfunction, hospitalization, or even premature death. A common immune-related adverse effect or IRA is thyroiditis. 
which occurs in about 12% of the patients treated with anti-PD-1 or anti-PDL1 monotherapy. A challenge with studying immune-related adverse events, such as ICI-induced thyroiditis, is that we don't understand the mechanism of action. And this is where the group and Melissa comes in. <laughs> we got th these guys asking a very important questions. They want to define the immune mechanisms underlying ICI-induced thyroiditis using a new mouse model that recapitulates multiple features of immune-related adverse events in cancer patients. While some preclinical models for ICI-induced thyroiditis exist with the CBA, J, and B6 mice, these models require either a genetic knockout or active immunization to develop overt disease. And here we have a new model being produced by the group. Before we talk about the preclinical model that your group has used, Melissa, can you tell us about the origin of this idea about looking for mechanism of action of ICI-induced thyroiditis? Has it been a focus of your group for a while, or is it a new project that was taken up by the by your group? There's two parts to that answer. Mm -hmm. So my graduate training was in tumor immunology, and I worked on tumor immunology and immune suppressor cells. And at that time, the central question was, how do we know which tumors are going to respond to immunotherapy? Immunotherapy was relatively new. We didn't have checkpoint inhibitors yet. And one of the studies we did was to identify the immune profile of a tumor and think about tumors as being, for example, hot or cold. And mm -hmm. that might determine what kinds of immune responses we have, which at the time was relatively novel because we were still thinking about liver cancer as liver cancer, colon cancer as colon cancer, rather than, for example, a PD-1 positive tumor that might respond to immunotherapy within mm -hmm. one histologic type. And so we did a study where we took multiple tumor models of different organs and we subjected them to different regimens of immunotherapy and found that the ones that had greater response to, for example, blockade of immune regulation, like a checkpoint inhibitor, maybe were easier to treat, but the converse of it is that we saw more autoimmunity in the mice. Mm -hmm. So that sort of planted the seed. And then I did my residency training at Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is connected to the Dana-Farber. And that was in the sort of 2014 range when checkpoint inhibitors were really hitting their FDA approval. And so as a house officer, I saw the effects of immune-related adverse events firsthand, and we didn't know how to treat them. And so this was an emerging clinical entity that really caught my attention. So when I came to UCLA, I teamed up with Maureen Sue, who's an expert in autoimmunity, and we paired our tumor immunology background with her expertise in autoimmunity. And it was a great synergy for being able to address this question that is sort of now a pressing clinical scenario that we have to figure out. That is pretty cool. Also, just taking up these two extremes of the immune spectrum, autoimmunity and cancer in one paper, that's that's nice. <laughs> Not often we see that. Okay, I think with that, we can dive into the paper. To start off, the authors wanted to look at the non-obese diabetic mice or the NOD mice as model. These mice are well known for being a model for type one autoimmune diabetes. However, Apart from the pancreatic inflammation, these mice also develop autoimmunity in some other tissues. Interestingly, young NOD mice, before they develop overt autoimmunity, recapture some features of those patients who are at high risk of developing immune-related adverse events. To test if these mice can serve as a model for ICI-induced thyroiditis, 
four to six week old mice were treated twice a week with anti-CTLA-4 and PDA-1. I mean, anti-CTLA-4, anti-PDA-1 as single therapy or both of them for four to eight weeks. The authors noticed that after ICI treatment, there was an increase in effector memory T-cells and regulatory T-cells in the spleen. Then there was an increase in immune infiltrates in the thyroid tissues. These mice also had increased thyroxine hormone concentration in the serum as consistent with excess thyroid hormone release seen during the early destructive phase of ICI-associated thyroiditis. Similar lymphocyte infiltrates could also be seen in other, other organs like liver, lungs, pancreas, salivary glands, and lacrimal glands. Overall, from this, from this part of the study, the authors were able to show that young NOD mice model mice recapitulate many features of these clinical ICI-associated autoimmunity seen in cancer patients. Uh, Melissa, apart from the NOD mice, do you have any other candidates to look into this? Yes, and I, I have to laugh a little bit because uh, <laughs> this mouse model took us about three years to get working. Yeah. And <laughs> only to say, as you've noted, many mice are, could be possible candidates. And mm -hmm. one of the inherent things about mice is there many of the inbred strains are very resistant to autoimmunity such as the C57 black six mice um, and some of the other strains. So we absolutely tried many different strains of mice. We've shown the B6 data in the paper. Um, we also tried a lot of ways to precipitate autoimmunity. So for example, mm -hmm. we induced lymphopenia, for example, mimicking chemotherapy induced lymphopenia and recovery, which is known to increase the risk for autoimmunity uh, with sort of repopulation of the peripheral immune system. And we ultimately did settle on the Nod mouse in part because we were committed to an immune competent host. And so we didn't want to have to knock out a whole population. We didn't want to have to use, for example, an adjuvant or xenoimmunization. We were trying to match the human situation. And the Nod mouse is really thought of as a model of type 1 diabetes, but it also gets a lot of other subclinical autoimmunity. And as we were thinking about patients, for example, 10% of women who are healthy have underlying thyroid autoimmunity. So the general population of people actually have a, a relatively high rate of underlying autoimmunity. And then there was emerging data by one of our colleagues, Zoe Quant at UCSF, that people who were at higher risk for immune-related adverse events could actually be identified by their HLA tissue type. And hmm. one of the things about the Nod mouse is that its autoimmune predisposition is related to MHC or a major histocompatibility complex, this HLA tissue type, that's a large part of the polygenetic risk of the Nod mouse for autoimmunity. So we thought it might be a good match. And indeed we were able to get multi-organ autoimmunity relatively consistently. And so that's why we ultimately settled on the Nod mouse, though, as you can imagine, they get more diabetes. So yeah. <laughs> that makes for some tough clinical uh, sort of care of the mice in terms of having to give them a lot of insulin um, if they get diabetes. But it ended up being a good fit as we learned more about human immune-related adverse events and because of the underlying resistance of many mouse strains to autoimmunity. Just a basic question. Did you have to sacrifice any of your mice because of high uh, sugar levels, high glucose? 
we have that written in the protocol. We actually have a whole team of people who give the mice daily insulin injections. We give okay. them Synthroid, which is levothyroxine or thyroid hormone replacement. If they develop hypothyroidism, we give them fluid if they need fluid. We have a very comprehensive care team for our mice. Okay, because I worked with when I worked with NOD mice, I was like, damn it, another one with over 240 glucose levels. <laughs> Gotta sacrifice this one. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a pain to work with these and I, I found a lot of uh, variations in how some of these mice have just an off the charts glucose and some are doing like they're healthy mice. It's it's, it's really weird. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for that answer, which takes us to the next question. Now that we have established NOD mice can recapitulate ICI induced autoimmunity, then authors were next interested in looking at the cell populations in these immune infiltrates that we saw in various organs. They found increased gene expression of PTPRC which is a marker for hematopoietic cells, and increased CD3 epsilon, a marker for T cells, in the thyroid of mice after ICI treatment. Then, using flow cytometry, the authors were able to show that this immune infiltrate increase after ICI treatment consisted of T cells, B cells, dendritic cells, and natural killer cells. T cells were the majority population seen in this infiltrate. These data indicate that after ICI treatment in NOD mice, a variety of immune cells aggregate in the thyroid, with T cells being a significant proportion. Melissa, I can see a clear role why T cells could go berserk after rounds of ICI treatment. We typically see them as being on the receiving end of anti-PD-1. What's your thought on non-T cells, such as dendritic cells and natural killer cells, as they're also coming to infiltrate these tissues? Are Is there evidence that ICIs work directly on non-T cells? So we now know that, especially with techniques like single cell sequencing that give us a more in-depth look than perhaps something like immunostochemistry or flow cytometry, that the diversity of cells that express checkpoint proteins is probably greater than we initially appreciated. And so, for example, we now know that program death protein PD-1 probably is also transiently expressed in some myeloid populations, maybe some innate lymphoid populations. So we think we weren't sure what to expect in terms of what immune populations were there. It's one of the reasons we used a lot of different techniques to look at the infiltrates. And I would say we were not surprised by the T cells, as you'll touch on later, the gamma delta T cells were a surprise to us. And mm -hmm. Um, that's not a population that's been described in thyroid autoimmunity before, and we have more work to do there. I think we expected to maybe see a role for NK cells and innate lymphoid cells, especially given their role in type 3 immunity. We actually didn't see any innate lymphoid cells in the tissue infiltrates, but they mm -hmm. might have a role in secondary lymphoid organs. And then we're just now starting to understand how the myeloid populations with dendritic cells and B cells maybe aren't directly activated by checkpoint inhibitors, but we can imagine that if T cells are having a response that will have a secondary or bystander effect potentially on the activation of the innate lymphoid system as well. Yeah, that'd be cool to find out what these molecules are doing on the other cell types. Are they acting as a sink or do they actually have effect inside these cells? That'd be cool. But yeah, thanks for the answer. And Eugenio, I'll let you take the next figure. Sure, thank you, Jatin. We all know that immune checkpoint inhibition targets the activation of T-cells. This activation has been related to the development of several immune-related adverse events, including the ones observed in the thyroids. However, one interesting observation has surged throughout the years. 
Treating patients with anti-inflammatory drugs does not impair anti-tumor immunity and, uh, and alleviates the systemic multi-organ damage. Therefore, the authors wanted to get know a little bit more about the phenotype of those thyroid infiltrating T-cells. The authors found a consistent type 3 immune, immune signature in the tissue. They not only found enrichment of inductor molecules such as IL-6, TJ-beta, TNF-alpha, and IL-beta but also effector molecules such as IL-17 and the master transcription factor, ROR-C. A closer look at the CD3-positive cells revealed that most of them were IL-17 gamma-delta T cells. And by using single-cell RNA-seq, the authors found that, the, uh, that after 12 immune checkpoint inhibitor treatment, the immune infiltrate in the thyroids expanded, particularly the gamma-delta T cells that produce IL-17 and that those cells were expressing myeloid-attracting chemicals, in, indicating a possible immune crosstalk that favors inflammation and thyroid autoimmunity. In conclusion, ICI induces a type 3 immune signature in the tissue, mostly drive by IL-17 producing gamma-delta T-cells. In your single-cell RNA-seq data, we saw that before the ICI treatment, there was a basal population of IL-17 gamma-delta T-cells. What do you think is the role of these T-cells in the physiology of the thyroid gland? So the gamma-delta T-cells are an innate-like population of T-cells, so we would imagine that there might be a resident population in the thyroid. I think another important thing to remember is that our NAD-mouse model, much like the human population, has a baseline level of subclinical thyroid autoimmunity. So one thought we had is that maybe some of the mice used in our single cell might have had some early subclinical autoimmunity as reflected by the gamma delta T cell population. So our single cell data set included about 30 mice. Because the mouse thyroid is so small, we had to pool a lot of mice. So it's possible that there was some underlying autoimmunity there. But I think with the gamma delta T cells, what we know about them is that they can really, once triggered, expand the adaptive autoimmune response. So we know that there's a role for gamma-delta T-cells to expand and induce CD4 helper T-cells that make IL-17, what we think about as TH17 cells, as well as CD8 T-cells. And when we looked at the sort of kinetics of thyroiditis developing with checkpoint inhibitor over time, which I think is data that maybe didn't make it into the final paper, what I can tell you is that it often started with gamma-delta T-cells first, and then in subsequent weeks, we saw an expansion of the CD4 and CD8 population. So they're probably a trigger that then leads to greater expansion of the TH17 population. Okay, very, very interesting. I think uh, there are recently papers related to IL-17 gamma-delta in other tissues, given other, I, I, mean, I have seen in the brain, they're controlling anxiety. So it's really curious to try to understand what are the role of these really, if, if, even though there are really few cells there in the body, but they're like a really have an important role in physiology, I, think, I really think. Well, um, given the previous observation, it was tempting to predict that IL-17 blockade could prevent development of autoimmunity. The authors used IL-17 neutralizing antibodies after ICI treatment and looked for the development of autoimmunity. The authors found a prominent reduction of the development of autoimmunity in different organs, including the thyroid gland. This was followed by a reduction of the intrathyroidal immune infiltrate. The same phenotype was observed when the animals were treated with anti-TNF-alpha antibody, a strong inductor of titri immunity. With this data, we can conclude that the inhibition of IL-17 axis reduces thyroid autoimmune infiltrate with ICI treatment. Jessica, did you look for IL-17F as well, or just IL-17-alpha? 
We did look for IL-17F. And as you allude to, it's another isoform of IL-17. Mm-hmm. And so we did look for it. It actually tends to have slightly longer lived, long-lived transcripts. So actually it has an even higher signal when we did the quantitative uh, real-time PCR. We can mm-hmm. see IL-17F quite elevated. The reason that we looked specifically at IL-17A, and as you noted, TNF-alpha, was really for clinical translation. So the goal of this work was to provide a preclinical basis to select best agents to reduce immune-related adverse events in patients. And the clinically FDA-approved agents right now are IL-17A inhibitors and TNF-alpha inhibitors. And so we focused our efforts on that. But I would imagine that an IL-17F or more global inhibitor would also work to reduce the toxicity. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Melissa. Um, so, Jatin, what's going on with the paper? What's next? Yeah, let me tell you what's next, because we just found out this IL-17 block, it looks like a really great candidate for treating people with autoimmune disease caused by ICI treatment. However, people undergoing ICI treatment usually also have cancer. So the authors decided to test how this autoimmune pathology might play out in the context of cancer. Therefore, the authors generated a syngenic mouse model by grafting melanoma or colon carcinoma tumors into the NOD mice. Melissa, in the text, you mentioned that there aren't many syngenic tumor models for NOD mice. Can you elaborate on that? So one of the things about the nod mouse is that it's primarily been used to study autoimmunity, whereas we turn to models like the C57B6 black mouse or, for example, bulb C mice to look at cancer. So there wasn't a lot of overlap. There actually were no models of tumor except for an insulinoma that was available in the nod mouse. So this was a challenge that really required a multidisciplinary, multi-lab approach. And so we turned to our collaborator, Anthony Rebus, who has done a lot of work on the development of pembrolizumab for assistance. And so with their group, we were able to modify some of the black six tumor lines to be able to be grafted in to provide a model. We're also working on a thyroid cancer, cancer truly syngenaic um, tumor model, and we're hoping to do others, but it's a big challenge. And I think it was important to us to have a tumor because as you noted, while immunotherapy is used in some patients as adjuvant therapy, where they've already had their tumor surgically removed, there's another huge group of patients that has a large tumor burden and it's being used as a primary therapy. And we anticipated that there might be immune differences in those contexts. And we wanted to make sure that the immune story we were finding and reporting was consistently reported for both of those contexts. Okay, thanks a lot for that answer. So we dive back into the paper. Next, the authors expose these tumor-bearing mice to ICI treatment or an isotype control then dissected the thyroid after four weeks and examined the major cell populations. In mice bearing either melanoma or colon carcinoma tumors, there was a significant increase in IL-17 and cytotoxic IL-17 cells. I mean, cytotoxic type 17 cells. In the mice bearing the tumor from melanoma cell line, there was also a non-significant increase in gamma-delta type 17 cells. Uh, so we now see that although tumor-free ICI-treated mice usually had thyroid infiltrate in the, or dominated by gamma-delta T17 cells, tumor-bearing ICI-treated mice had thyroid infiltrates made up of mostly increased T-helper-17 and cytotoxic T17 cells. 
fortunately, IL-17A blockade helps to inhibit all of these three cells, the like T-helper 17s, uh, cytotoxic 17s, and gamma-delta 17s. So to see how anti-IL-17A treatment affects thyroid infiltrates following ICI treatment in tumor-bearing mice, the authors expose the mice to ICI treatment in tandem with anti-L17A or an isotype control. From this experiment, the authors found that anti-IL17A treatment reduced the frequency and severity of thyroid autoimmune infiltration. Moreover, this trend was maintained in both tumor cell models that they tested in the study. Most importantly, pairing ICI treatment with IL-17A blockade still allowed for the anti-tumor effects of the ICI treatment because there wouldn't be any point in using these two treatments if they just canceled each other out. <clears throat> Melissa, in the supplemental figures, your group investigates the effect of ICI on immune cell infiltration of other tissues. Why did you focus on thyroid for this paper? And in what context do you think IL-17A blockade will be most or least effective? I love that you point out the key clinical translational piece of this, which is that we really have to keep the patients in mind when thinking about the inhibitors that we use. And so to your first question, why did we focus on the thyroid? The short answer is probably that I'm a thyroidologist and the paper was getting too long. <laughs> so we have ongoing studies in the colon. So colitis or gut inflammation is a major um, immune-related adverse event that causes patient morbidity and mortality. That is a key focus of our ongoing research, as well as, for example, the onset of diabetes. Those were two that we reported in the paper. Interestingly, the gut inflammation was reduced by both TNF-alpha and IL-17 inhibitors, which I think fits with maybe the types of immune mechanisms we know to contribute to gut autoimmunity from inflammatory bowel disease, for example. Mm -hmm. um, however, the type 1 diabetes or autoimmune diabetes was not reversed, suggesting that there's maybe different mechanisms in different tissues. And we are working on that now. But you are correct. Our mice also get liver inflammation, lung inflammation, salivary inflammation. So we have a lot of work to do. And those are sort of ongoing projects. And then to your question as to in what context would we recommend IL-17 blockade be sort of first tested, I think it's important to remember that patients with underlying pre-existing autoimmunity were systematically excluded from most immunotherapy trials and remain a group that's still at very high risk for autoimmunity, we think, on immune checkpoint inhibitors, but still get cancer and we want them to benefit from these therapies. So our ideal group of patients to test these types of inhibitors or prophylactic blockade with would be patients who have perhaps systemic autoimmunity already hmm. because they might be at higher risk. And so sort of targeting our most susceptible patient populations in the same way that the nod mouse, right, is a very susceptible mouse to IRAs. So our phase one trial view is really to kind of target patients who might already have, for example, lupus or inflammatory bowel disease or another kind of autoimmunity that might have previously excluded them from immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. Okay, that was, I think that was pretty cool. And also, I, I just realized, yeah, of course, people who have autoimmunity may also get cancer. I don't know why I always thought these were mutually exclusive groups. <laughs> and with that, we are at the end of the paper, and let's look at some discussion points. So this paper focuses mostly on type 3 immune cells, but what could be some other cells that contribute to the autoimmune phenotypes in response to ICI treatment, in your opinion, Melissa? 
So we have ongoing studies on this. And one of the valuable data sets that's driving our next phase of research is we have a single cell data set from patient biopsies of thyroiditis from immune checkpoint inhibitors. And I think looking in situ, in the tissue is really opened up some new targets for us. And so both in the mouse and in our human data set, what we are seeing is that there's clearly a role for interferon gamma or type one immunity in driving these immune-related adverse events. One of the challenges there is that while it's an important mechanism, we think we cannot reduce interferon gamma activity systemically in a patient on immune checkpoint inhibitor because we know that it's a critical component of immune checkpoint inhibitor response. Mm-hmm. So then we've looked a little bit further upstream, and now we're looking at other autoimmune pathways that might drive into that. And so our current work is focusing on interleukin-21 and how that might be contributing and might be another way where we can perhaps separate toxicity from efficacy, if not systemically, then at least in a tissue-specific manner. And so as we go forward in the research, I think it's going to be important to focus on tissue-specific mechanisms of tolerance and autoimmunity, what parts of the immune checkpoint inhibitor toxicities are also needed for therapy, which ones are only needed for toxicity. And then if we can narrow down on the specific immune cell population, as you alluded to, there's gamma delta T cells, there's CD4 T cells, there might be B cells, there might be myeloid cells, that'll allow us to maybe target inhibitors to only a subset of the immune system, allowing us to perhaps maintain the anti-tumor efficacy well. Okay. And I like the idea about IL-21 because I think IL-21 also acts as an autocrine factor for the helper 17s. And I think I read this way back that when T-helper 17s become the T-helper 17s, they remove, they don't require IL-2 as much anymore and they completely depend on IL-21. So it looks like a more targeted approach there. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a lot still to be known, but I think that IL-21 and the IL-17 connection is certainly something we're looking into. Okay. What other cell types do you think are secreting IL-17 apart from these three that we discussed today? I think one of the things that was a surprise to us is we know that ILCs or innate lymphoid cells type three make a lot of the IL-17 and contribute to autoimmunity. And so I think we mm-hmm. were a little bit surprised actually that our single cell data sets, both in mouse and human did not show innate lymphoid cells in the tissues. So I think that's something that we would want to confirm in other organs. It might be again, for example, that in the gut, there's another role. And then I think, as you mentioned, the blockade that we employed in our mice was systemic. And the benefit of that is that even if we didn't know all the cells, we could still induce an effect. But I think the myeloid production of inflammatory factors, either contributing to IL-17 or promoting the production of the IL-17 producing T cells is the other place to look. So I think the myeloid compartment still is relatively unknown. Okay. Yeah, that's it's going to be God help with the single cell RNA-seq, that's going to solve most of the problem and probably world hunger one day. <laughs> it's, it's so good. <laughs> All right. So last, last one. Would anti-IL-17A have to be given at the same time as ICI treatment or could it be added later when a patient begins developing IRA? And I think you are the right person to ask this since you are a clinician. I think anytime we're adding on therapies, we have to be cognizant of side effects. And mm-hmm. so... um as you noted in the paper, we gave IL-17 in tandem initially because it seemed like that was a higher bar. And we also thought maybe you would need the IL-17 to be induced before it was effectively inhibited. 
IL-17 plays a really important role in tolerance as well. And so I think finding the right balance of when to give it. So I would say in patients who don't have any known pre-existing autoimmunity, I might first try it as something given once a patient begins developing immune-related adverse events. The million-dollar question there then is, what's a biomarker for developing immune-related adverse events? <laughs> so that's another question that needs to be answered. And then for patients who we know are at very high risk of developing side effects, so for example, patients who already have thyroid autoimmunity, 100% of them, as has been shown by a couple of recent meta-analyses, go on to develop thyroid tissue lost in IRA. Those patients, maybe we put on IL-17 blockade in the first three cycles of immunotherapy when we know the incidence of thyroid immunolytic adverse events is highest, and maybe we just do a three-cycle course of protection for them. Mm-hmm. So we think it's going to be driven by whether or not they have pre-existing autoimmunity and what is their course of immunolytic adverse event, their um, sort of immune checkpoint hypertherapy. So it'll it can be tailored to be the least toxic and most efficacious, I think. Okay. That sounds like that sounds like a very good strategy. And I actually am very very excited to see what you guys come up with after this. Do you, do you have several papers in line? We have one that'll go in in the next few weeks, and I think hopefully we'll generate some collaborations and also some you know input from others because we have so many tissues that IRAs affect. We are routinely getting input from our collaborators at other sites. Let's say, you know, have you tried this molecule? Have you tried this pathway? And I think the more people working on this, the better. We also mm-hmm. have a national network of um, onco-endocrinologists who get together and we're often sharing ideas about what we're observing clinically and that drives a lot of the research. So the next story to come is probably going to be our human data set and our IL-21 story. And I'm excited to sort of share that with you. And then I think... We'll just move on to whatever we find next, maybe the gut. I hope you guys get these papers out soon. So it sounds very exciting. Malia, I think with can, that, yeah, well, you hand yeah, Can I go for a, a last question for the discussion? Mm-hmm. So um, I was, you know, looking at the introduction uh, one more time. And I, I, it, with the thing you mentioned that only 12% of the patients got thyroid, uh, thyroiditis uh, after ICI. So I was wondering uh, if... Uh, is there a sex bias related uh, process? Because I, I know some of my friends that develop thyroiditis, most of them are women. So I don't know if this is a bias to get that. And also if if any patient develop uh, any immune related adverse events, um, they get it systemically or there are some patients that only de- develop you know, thyroiditis, for example. Those are both very insightful questions, Eugenio, and you hit upon another couple of our research areas. So, <laughs> um, to the first point, as you noted, thyroiditis, Hashimoto's, for example, has an eight to one female to male uh, sex bias. So it's huge. It's like lupus. It's one of the most sex mm-hmm. predominant, very different from immune checkpoint inhibitor thyroid autoimmunity, which is relatively equal male to female. So there's clearly something different there. And so the sex differences and spontaneous versus checkpoint inhibitor autoimmunity is of a huge interest to us right now. And so we're looking into that and it might be related to some of the epigenetic signaling and X chromosome inactivation that drives a lot of immune genes and immune response differences in women. So I think that's that's a big part of it. Um, and then I apologize, the second part of your question. Yeah, if, there's, if there are any patients that only develop one organ target, such as thyroid? There are some. Um, We know that some patients develop different 
collections of them, shall we say. So it's very difficult for us at this point to predict who will get, for example, thyroid and pituitary versus who will get gut and thyroid. We know that patients who develop multiple immune-related adverse events, in particular those that are endocrine, perhaps because the morbidity is relatively low, have a much better response to immunotherapy. So the patients who have thyroid immune-related adverse events actually have a a hazard ratio of 0.5 in general of improved overall survival and progression-free survival. So there's some relationship to efficacy of the immunotherapy. We don't yet know how to predict which patients will get which tissues. There's a number of studies that have come out recently about HLA type. And so that data, I think, will be forthcoming. Uh, One of our collaborators just put in an HLA type to predict hypophysitis, which is pituitary inflammation. They've identified an HLA type for type 1 diabetes, and there's polygenetic risk scores for thyroid, skin, and gut. So I think that the genetic immune predisposition will be emerging and perhaps be able to inform clinical care. But right now, we don't have a biomarker to identify which patients will get these diseases. Thank you, Melissa. I think with that, let's reach for the summary of this paper. If you have been away, not listening to our conversations, this is what you missed. ICIs have changed the face of cancer treatment, but the fact that treatment with ICIs can lead to autoimmunity is a huge problem. In this paper, the authors find that ICI treatment leads to increased infiltration of type T helper 17 and gamma delta 17 cells into the organs in both tumor-free and tumor-bearing mice. The authors also create a mouse model using the N- on the NOD background to test the efficacy of IL-17A blocker in reducing autoimmune infiltrates. And they find that IL-17A paired with ICI reduces immune infiltrates while also reducing tumor burden. And since IL-17A antibodies are approved for several inflammatory disorders, I think it would be a relatively easier task to get these approved in this case. Hopefully, one day we can see these in, uh, in the clinic. This paper has been really nice to look at. And uh, Melissa, I really wish you guys can continue producing more stuff in in the future. Eugenio, do you have anything else to add before we wrap up our discussion today? No, it was a really great discussion and great times that Melissa is doing. (laughs) Thank you so much for the, the chance to talk about it. As you can imagine, there were many, many individuals who contributed to this work. And so uh, it obviously all happens with the team and also I think getting the input from folks around the nation. So thank you so much for us to talk about it. It was really fun to chat with you guys today. And I, I look forward to hearing the rest of your podcast. I just just before we end, do you guys are you in need of grad students or postdocs that you would like to maybe mention here right now? Yes. Yeah, so we're actively recruiting graduate students and a postdoc at UCLA to this project. And we also welcome undergrads. We've got some really great individuals and trainees at all levels that contribute to this. As you can see, many of the the co-authors on this paper were undergraduate students at UCLA. We just have a great group. So looking for grad students, looking for a postdoc, happy to have anyone come join us. Okay. So with that, I think we have a good point to wrap up the discussion. Thanks a lot, Melissa, for joining us today. Thanks, Eugenio, for the wonderful discussion. For our audience, if you're interested in know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. You can find our blogs pod, and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at gmail.com. And with that, I'm your host, Jatin Sharma, signing off until we meet again. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you.